Hi, welcome to another NBC Church podcast. We hope that this message encourages, equips, challenges and edifies you in your walk with Christ. Subscribe to this podcast and share it with whoever you know. Thank you. Well guys, welcome to the preaching of the word this morning. We're going to read uh, through Hebrews 6 and preach through Hebrews 6 this morning uh, all together. We're going to exegete each verse um, all the way through to verse 20. Um, but first let's pray and we'll get into it. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning. Thank you, Lord, that we can come to you uh, and hear your word, sit under it and be taught by it and sit at your feet um, and worship you as we hear the word. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us your word. You've given us um, this eternal word that does not change. It lasts forever. And every single word is going to accomplish what it's supposed to. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us, your mercies that are new every morning. And thank you for our service. In Jesus' name, amen. So Hebrews 6, let's read it through together. Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go unto maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop, useful to those for whose sake it's cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burnt." Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you've shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater whom by whom to swear... He swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So may God bless the reading of his word. So last week we looked at Hebrews chapter 5. We're going chapter by chapter. Uh, which details the mysterious priest called Melchizedek, who was probably a pre-incarnate Jesus appearing to Abraham after a battle victory. We went through that together. We also looked at the fact that, as believers, we must move on to maturity in theology, in God, in the Word, and most certainly not stay spiritually stagnant for the rest of our lives. And this leads us to verse 1 of chapter 6. And again, there's a therefore. So therefore, because we need to move into maturity... 
and cannot remain on the bottle drinking sugary drink and becoming stagnant believers, we must go from the elementary fundamentals of the faith into deeper things. This doesn't mean more mystical or outlandish things. It doesn't mean leaving scripture and going into these deep wacko things like tossing out the Bible and relying on unctions and hunches. No, it means to grow on in our faith that pursues truth, continues to study scripture and wrestle through tough questions, to ask God for wisdom and guidance with difficult passages and build further and further upon the foundations built up when we first believed. Matthew Henry says this uh, in regards to spiritual growth. Listen to this. Here, observe, in order to their growth, Christians must leave the principles of the doctrine of Christ. How must they leave them? They must not lose them. They must not despise them. They must not forget them. They must lay them up in their hearts and lay them as their foundation of all their profession and expectation. But they must not rest and stay in them. They must not be always laying the foundation. They must go on and build upon it. There must be a superstructure, for the foundation is laid on purpose to support the building. There isn't a building out there that's just left as a cement slab on the ground, is there? It must be built up into something. Further work needs to be done to make it a habitable place, a home. It cannot remain a slab, otherwise nothing can thrive there. Nobody can have fun there. Nobody can rest there. No one can even know they're supposed to go into the house if there's no house. The basics of the faith that we need to know as a foundation are, and they're listed there, repentance from sin and faith in Jesus, baptism, that's what washings means, which follows repentance and faith, the laying on of hands in prayer for others or for blessings, the final resurrection from the dead for believers and eternal judgment for sin. They, these are so elemental that if a believer doesn't know these, he probably isn't past the infant stage. These truths are basically self-evident after becoming a believer and go hand in hand with each other. So you've got repentance of faith, baptism, resurrection from the dead. They're all elementary principles. Verse 3 has the phrase, This we will do if God permits. And the Greek word for permits is epitrepo, which means to turn over care to someone else. So it means if God permits, as in if God is the one we give this care to about our faith. So David Guzik says this, Quote, if God permits, expresses the believer's complete dependence on God. If we do not press on to maturity, we realize that it only happens at God's pleasure. Sorry, if we do press on to maturity, we realize that it only happens at God's pleasure. It's his doing. The doing of this, moving on from elementary principles, is fully dependent on God and his power. We aren't the ones pushing ourselves along. God is. God, through the Holy Spirit, brings to remembrance the things we've learnt in the Bible and guides us into all truth. And where do we find this truth? In the Bible. The Bible says, your word is truth. Or in the King James, thy word is truth. Verse 4 is huge because it brings up the debate of losing salvation or not. And this is absolutely monumental, this verse. It's caused a lot of debate. It still is hotly debated. And But I'm coming from this as... A Calvinist. I believe that those whom God has saved, his elect, cannot be snatched out of his hands. And I believe that scripture is very clear when it comes to salvation, that repentance, faith, perseverance in that faith and running the race to the end are all gifts graciously granted by God. Okay, He gives repentance. He gives faith. He is the instigator of salvation. Our response is and our will doesn't make salvation happen. God makes salvation happen. God even makes us to want to be saved. But this verse is here. 
And it seems to indicate that people can actually hear the gospel, taste his goodness, then crucify Jesus again and again with their actions and turn away in apostasy with a hardened heart. So let's dive into that. Let's have a look at it. Let's read this portion of scripture and then unpack it. So, verse 4, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him to contempt. So David Gusick says this about the person who appears religious. He says this, Remember that one can have great spiritual experiences and still not be saved. Matthew 7.21 One can even do many religious things and still not be saved. The perfect example of this are the Pharisees who evangelized. Matthew 23 Prayed impressively. Matthew 23 Made religious commitments. Matthew 23 Tithed rigorously. Matthew 23 Honored religious traditions. Matthew 23 And who fasted. Luke 18 They were not saved. Yet from a human perspective, we would call anyone who seemed to have credentials mentioned in Hebrews 6. Would we mention them a non-Christian? We might make that person an elder. For all human observation, we must say these Christians are spoken of in Hebrews 6. Furthermore, it's impossible to display some fruit or spiritual growth then to die spiritually showing that... Sorry, it is possible for people to die spiritually showing that the soil of the heart was never right in the first place. This is a false conversion. So are they Christians? From a human's perspective, we would say they are. Yet from God's perspective, it's impossible to say this side of eternity. These people may be believers or maybe not. Either way, they've certainly tasted what's good and true from Scripture in one way or the other. The actual emphasis here, though, is on apostasy. A hardening of the heart so cold that it's indifferent to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. It doesn't care anymore. Actively resisting the Holy Spirit's call to repent and believe, which is always there. If he cares about your salvation and you care about your salvation, that conviction is always there when you stray. It's always present, always there to help you. Act, uh, and ultimately means destruction because of the nature of the person holding Jesus in contempt. And the Greek word for crucify in that passage, where it says crucify again and again, is anastoru, which means to figuratively re-crucify Jesus. It's like nailing, to, nailing him to the cross again and trying to kill him again. I cannot think of anything worse than constantly trying to kill Jesus day by day with so much hatred. There's nothing worse than that kind of apostasy. If you today, watching, continually care about Jesus and care that he loves you and wants you to return to him in faith, you'll owe K. That means the Holy Spirit's working on you. You care, and He cares. This verse is describing a certain kind of depravity that's really rare, that rejects absolutely all of God's good graces, and of His convicting of sin for many, many years, and simply doesn't care anymore. This is very rare in people. And Chuck Smith says this about verse 4. What do we know that the scripture teaches? That a man may fail, that a man may even blaspheme and still find forgiveness. We remember that Jesus said to Peter, Before the cock crows, you are going to deny me three times. Peter said, If they would kill me, I would never deny you. After the cock crowed twice, Jesus turned over, looked at Peter, and Peter realized he had denied him three times. The last time was blasphemy, saying, I don't know the man. And he went out and he wept bitterly, but Peter still found forgiveness. He found restoration and he became one of the pillars of the early church, an apostle, a leader of men. So it doesn't mean that if I falter or fail or fail, then I'm out or fall, that God puts me out and I have no hope of redemption. No, it doesn't mean that. It's impossible that I might be renewed 
unto repentance. We know that God is gracious. We know that God is merciful. We know that he's long-suffering. We know that he's patient. And he's not rewarded us according to our iniquities. But as high as the heaven is above the earth, so high is the mercies of God towards those who fear him. Satan often uses this verse to a person who's backslidden and he says, Man, you are out. Do you see what it says here in Hebrews? You've had it. That was the unpardonable sin you've committed and there's no way to renew you to repentance. You are out of the game. This is one of those scriptures that we have to deal with often as a pastor as people come out and they have, you can tell it, you can see it in their eyes and they say, I think I've committed the unpardonable sin. We even have them calling on the phone long distance. I believe I've committed the unpardonable sin, they say. And I always tell them, I know you haven't. How do you know, they say? Because you called. You called me. If you committed the unpardonable sin, you wouldn't care. The Holy Spirit wouldn't be dealing with you at all. You'd be so cold, callous, and indifferent that you wouldn't even care that if you did. The fact that you're concerned and care is the sign you haven't. God's Spirit's still dealing with you. But Satan loves to use this as a club over people's head, and he beats them to death with it. End quote. So rest assured, friends, you watching, if you care that Jesus wants you back, if you desire a relationship with God that's pure and that is true, and love Christ and his finished work, God will bring you back. After all, he's involved in the ministry of reconciliation. That's who he is. That's what he's about. The great reconciler wants you reconciled. He's always drawing men unto himself. Verse 7 to 9 describes the type of soil this person has. It's just bad soil. The gospel does indeed fall on different types of soil, and the hearer takes the seed, cultivates it, nourishes and cares for it, and it produces good fruit. The Bible says of Christians that you will know them by their fruit. So the writer moves on and says that for you I have better things to say. He's moving on now. There's nobody among you that I know of who's showing this kind of apostasy. It's just a dire warning that must be heard for those who are becoming hardened. There may be some watching, who knows? Verse 9 is a kind of passage about being led to better things regarding salvation, happy things. Verse 10 talks about God's kindness and his joy in the service that believers have in his name for others. He adores that. He cares for that. We are his children and he loves seeing us serve in his name and show the kind of sacrificial love we talked about in the intro. The moving love that moves first, even when people don't care for it or want God. We have a love that acts and helps others and is motivated by Christ's love. It's unlike any other love and God sees it. God knows it. God acts in us in that way. In verse 13, the writer points to how Abraham believed God when God made his promises. And God swore these promises by himself because there's no higher power. It's like God saying, I swear upon myself, I will uphold these promises because he is the final authority. God can only make promises to himself and nobody else because only he can perfectly keep them. He simply reveals his promises he's made to people, to us. And we inherit them. Abraham persevered with God because he knew the trustworthiness of God. He's fully trustworthy. It's unlike any other promise keeper. God is the promise keeper. God has faithfully kept his promises through the ages with others also. So verse uh, 17. So he intervened with an oath so that we who have found refuge in him may find strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us through two unchangeable things since it's impossible for God to lie. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, sure and steadfast, which reaches inside behind the curtain. 
where Jesus, our forerunner, entered on our behalf, since he became a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So listen to this. God has made sure that all of us can have the unchangeable God on our side, an anchor for the soul, a compass that always points to the right direction in truth, no matter what's going on, to God's word, to comfort and joy in the midst of chaos and fear, which is what we're seeing right now. The God has promised rest for our souls here and forever. This phrase reaches inside the curtain. It's a very interesting phrase before. This is a strong phrase that means God's hand goes beyond the partitioning of the very most holy place in the Jewish temple. He goes right in behind the curtain with his love and with his care. His hand stretches out further for us than any other hands. As far as the east is from the west, it says in scripture. Way beyond any human priest. His love goes as far as the east is from the west, which is in fact eternally far. If you drive in two opposite directions, you're never going to meet. You'll just go off into space forever. That's how far God's love extends. This anchor for the soul is ours forever. Nothing can separate us from the love, as it says in Romans. No principalities, powers, sword, famine, or person can remove us from the love of God. Nothing can. You have assurance of that. And we need this in this day and age, and others need to know this too. That there is a love out there that goes beyond human love. It's this self-sacrificial love that cares that Jesus died for you even though you are yet a sinner. And you can have eternal life if you just repent and believe. People need to hear this in this day and age. And we need to hear this. We need to be preaching this to ourselves as we learn in our Bible study. The gospel is the message, the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for all people. And that all who come to him, repent and believe, can be saved. We need to be preaching this to ourselves and to others. And as we close this morning and move into a time of worship, let's remember that, that we have this sure, steady anchor for our souls. He's there right with us, helping us, and he's moving us into acting love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for this church that is united under Scripture and under Jesus. We have one faith, one Lord, one baptism. And we thank you for that, Father. And we just rejoice that you are an anchor for us. You're a compass you are a promise keeper. You care for those that are worried about their sin and you care for those that think they've committed the unpardonable sin. The fact that we think about that means that you care for us and want to draw us back. And thank you, Lord, for all that you do for us, your mercies and your grace. Um, you've graced us with so much. We have so much to be thankful for and we just can't thank you enough. And thank you for your people. Um, who love and who move and who act in love because you moved first. You loved us first. We didn't love you first. You loved us first. We were your enemies and you still loved us first. We can't thank you enough for that, Jesus. And thank you for your word this morning, for this book of Hebrews that is so powerful. And thank you for your church that worships with their whole hearts, minds and strengths. And we ask that you bless the rest of this service and our weeks. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together. Thanks for joining us for NBC Church today. Share this podcast, give us a five-star review and subscribe so you don't miss the latest messages. Our church is live at 10 a.m. Sundays from the Goddard Family YouTube channel. God bless you as you walk with Christ.